expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Good evening. And also in studio today, we have Jane Ricards, economist correspondent for Taiwan. Jane. Good evening, Keith. Our stories this week... Student protesters end their occupation of the Ministry of Education with the threat of the oncoming typhoon Sudalor. Tainan Mayor William Lai sticks to his guns in the face of impeachment. James Sung of the People First Party jumps into the presidential race, as I think most observers have expected he would do for some time now. Uh, but first, what about that typhoon? Well, at the time of taping which I should say is a bit earlier than the broadcast, so you're certainly going to want to stay tuned to ICRT or head to our our website for the most up-to-date typhoon report. But uh, at the time of taping, uh, land and sea warnings are in effect for Taiwan. Uh, Now, Gavin, I think earlier this week we were calling this a super typhoon, but we've dropped that prefix. Uh, It's still being billed as the strongest typhoon uh, anywhere on the planet so far this year, but it looks like it's uh, lost a little bit of the punch. It has, yes, Keith. It's lost a lot of its punch. It only has sustained wind speeds of 173 kilometres an hour now, with gusts of up to 209 kilometres an hour. That, of course, is at the time of recording this show. However, it was, of course, the largest storm on Earth, which I thought was a very funny way for the international media to say. I guess you have to say something about a storm to make people buy newspapers. <laughs> and calling it the greatest storm and the biggest storm on Earth, I guess, sold a lot of newspapers. Yeah, got, got, got a lot of eyeballs. But is it expected to uh, wreak havoc this weekend, or uh, what, what's expected so well, far? It's a storm. Nobody really knows, do they? I mean, we're recording this, of course, Friday in sort of afternoonish early. And, of course, the storm is expected to make landfall on Saturday morning sometime in the Hualien Tai Dong area, so nobody will really know what happens until Saturday afternoon, probably. It's but the price of, a- of vegetables has gone up. Already? Already, yes. The uh, prices of cabbage have gone up threefold. Hitting us where it hurts. Absolutely. But it's, it's a fast-moving storm, so it's only going to be over the island for a day. No, several hours. Several hours, yeah. Currently, well, again, at the time of recording, it's moving at 22 kilometres an hour. All right. From east to west. It's going to land, like I said, somewhere in between Hualien and Taidong. And they've got it exiting, depending which map you look at and how accurate the map is by the map makers. It's going to exit somewhere in the Taijong area on Saturday. All right. And, uh, Jane, I think uh, we heard this week a little bit of news about uh, some new da- uh, disaster preparedness resources. Yes. According to um, the government's funded Central News Agency, the government's planning to hold disaster prevention exercises to improve public readiness in September, late September. That's from 21st to the 23rd. So they're going to do earthquake drills for earthquakes and also how to respond to a tsunami. And um, convenience stores are actually cooperating. They're working on practising distributing post-disaster resources and relief materials. And the Ministry of Interior has actually already set up an electronic disaster prevention system on its website, which was launched August the 1st, and it's www.comdrill.com.tw. So, um, yes, Taiwan, I mean, you know, say 
a decade ago or so, you know, the Taiwan was often criticised for its responses and actually Typhoon Morocot, for example, is very tragic and so many people died, like at least 450 people died. But I think that from this report, it looks like the government's working on things. and mm. So maybe a sign of uh, stepped up responses. Yes. All right. Well, this uh, typhoon is not just jacking up the price for our vegetables. It's also spelled the end for the occupation of the Ministry of Education. Students, of course, had been camped out in the building's courtyard since last Friday in protest over the controversial changes to the high school history curriculum. But yesterday, they packed up their things and left the compound. Uh, Sounds like safety concerns were the main reason behind this decision, but uh, the students had also received calls to withdraw from a number of prominent pan-green political figures. Uh, and it, you know, it was an eventful week for them. Uh, there was meetings that ended in tears. There was uh, a visit from the head of the Bamboo Union leader, Chang Anla. So, you know, it was quite, quite an eventful week for any high school student. Uh, <laughs> I, I never had a week like that in high school, I'm sure. Uh, but now it's kind of had an anticlimactic end. And I guess uh, the big question is, uh, has this week actually advanced their cause? Uh, Gavin, uh, there has been a bit of a government response. Can you tell us about that? Well, the government response, of course, came in the form of a request. So whether anything has changed or not is up to anybody's brain to work out. But the government did, or the lawmakers rather, did request that the Ministry of Education begin a review of the disputed curriculum guidelines, which are based on the Senior High School Education Act. Lawmakers also asked the Ministry of Education to allow schools around the island to freely select textbooks, these being history textbooks, for the next academic year. So basically these are simply requests. But I think the Ministry of Education's actually agreed to the um, the request from the legislature. Right, of course, it's quite ironic because the Ministry of Education did say several months ago when all this barahoo about the textbooks kicked off that they were going to allow schools around the island to freely select their textbooks. But what I did find ironic about this is the Ministry of Education likened this history textbook barahoo to the US use of biology textbooks. Right. It it is the case in the U.S. that in some counties uh, they present different interpretations of uh, evolution, and so he was kind of comparing it to uh, that situation. I'm not sure that was a good thing or a bad thing. I could make a very good guess at my opinion on that, but I shan't. (laughs) We'll leave it to our listeners to uh, interpret. Uh, But uh, interestingly, it sounds like the students will actually uh, may be able to participate in these review meetings and even uh, potentially have voting rights, uh, from my understanding. Uh, The first meetings are scheduled to be held in late August. Uh, So we're going to have to look forward uh, to seeing what comes out of that. The students, I I think, are not entirely satisfied with this. They were, of course, hoping that these uh, these changes were going to be postponed uh, and, you know, no meeting, just postpone them, put them off, maybe even shove them. Yeah, they were saying their bottom line was um, either the guidelines should be, the new guidelines should be postponed or abolished. Mm -hmm. And they were saying they weren't prepared to compromise on that. But I think the typhoon sort of wore them down a bit. Right. I think the crying didn't help either. After the meeting, yeah. I think if you're going to have a protest, and just because you don't get your way, you don't cry. Well... It doesn't really happen, does it? Can you imagine people in where I come from, England, or where Jane comes from, Australia, going, oh, the government didn't do what I want, so I'm going to stand here in central London outside Westminster and cry. It's a high you'd school be, students, high be, school students. You'd be ridiculed, really. Uh, but anyway, They said back. they hadn't slept very much and things <laughs> like that, so, you know... That's, that's an excuse, yeah. they hadn't slept too much. They're students, really. Anyway, anyway... Anyway, getting back to the serious things, I should get back to this. The the Premier Mao Zhugui yesterday actually said that he is now, because of these protests, he is considering drafting a political neutrality bill for inclusion in the Education Act. 
Apparently, he said, according to the Premier, the move will enable the island's education policies to adopt a transparent and credible mechanism and not be dominated by a single ideology. So maybe, you know, more a transparent process in the future is something that we could hope to see. Uh, Because that was the problem. The people who who revised the history curriculums, nobody knew who they were. Well, people did know who they were because the TSU had a big press conference and plastered their photos. Outed on. Yeah, basically, yeah. And, of course, several of these people were members of pro-unification-leaning yes. think tanks. Right, yes. right. And that's, of course, what uh, some of the furor is about. Uh, so, uh, Jane, we've uh, been yakking on about uh, this whole controversy on the show for a while now. Uh, what, what, what's the big thing that you take away from all this? Well, what's really striking to me is actually that I think there's not only sort of um, a cultural shift and that... Um, young people are moving towards having more of a Taiwanese identity as opposed to a Chinese identity, along with the rest of the island. But there's also a sort of generational shift going on. It's quite significant because, to me, the teenagers sort of seem like rowdy Westerners, like particularly when one said to the minister, you know, Minister Wu Suhua, you're a shameless minister and we mm. will go and get you. And um, I, I think that we sort of might see that with sort of teenagers in the West, but this is something quite new for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And I talked with my contacts about it and they sort of agreed that that student's behaviour is absolutely un- unheard of a generation ago. And I've sort of got the impression that the older generation, particularly the Guomindang and government officials, they just don't know how to handle it. Like sort of teenagers like that are sort of almost like aliens, you know. So, um, for example, I interviewed a prominent Guomindang politician, um, Jason Hu, and he sort of said he just... They thought, he thought the younger generation was so rude and he just didn't know how to respond. And um, I think that's sort of interesting. And also with the student who committed suicide, um, mm. one of my contacts told me he'd been reading Immanuel Kant. Like they're more likely to be reading George Orwell or Western mm-hmm. philosophers rather than Chinese philosophers and they're globalised. It's yeah. very interesting. There's a big generational sort of shift. And maybe that goes uh, some way to explaining how, you know, there's been so many talks between the yes. government and these students and just yes. nothing came out of them. It was uh, yes. time and time again, the students just said, well, they're just saying the same thing over again. Yes. And uh, they were just totally unproductive talks. Yes, yes. Um, of course, there was the famous eye rolling. <laughs> yes. Well, Wu Suhua said he was tired, but nobody really knows what was going on. About. Uh, like the students were tired. That's why they went home. <laughs> uh, hard to say. But yeah, if, if, if anyone wants to see this, there's a great JPEG of uh, Wu Suhua rolling his eyes and then giving yes. a, a nice big smile for the camera uh, moments later. Uh, okay, so uh, I guess uh, probably what the international media is wondering at this point yes. is, is this going to be the thing that turns into the next Sunflower Movement or is this kind of going to peter out uh, as it did this week? Well, I personally think it depends on how the education ministry responds. Um is it going to be the next sunflower movement? I'm more likely to see this as a continuation of the first sunflower movement, mm. that it's a trend which started with the sunflower movement and it's gaining momentum. Mm. And it's to do with frustration with the Mangjol government and a move towards a separate Taiwanese identity. But as I mentioned, it's also that there's this new youth activism and it kind of parallels the youth activities in Hong Kong, you know, the Occupy Central movement and so on. But... Um, yes, I think there'll be more. I think we're going to see many more young people getting involved in politics and protests, and we'll see similar protests. But with a, specifically with the textbook issue, I think it's how the government responds. What do you think, Gavin? Well, of course, it's quite ironic because they were calling. There have been calls for the lowering of the voting age. So, if you're a wily politician who leans, shall we say, to the right, 
and doesn't appeal to young people, you're probably not going to actually go for that. <laughs> Let's lower the voting age so young yes. people can not vote for me. But there was something quite interesting. About, I forget who it was. Who was it was a it was a it was a it was a KMT Pam Blue politician. It was quite interesting and quite ironic and quite interesting in a way that we're doing the red shirt protests, the Sherming de anti-corruption protests against President Chen Shui Bien. That was in two thousand and six. Yeah, the the, the 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 guy who said this, uh, the politician, I've, his name is gone, but he, he made a point that we didn't storm the presidential palace at the time, which I thought was quite ironic. These students, obviously, this Junflower movement stormed the legislative building. So These he's students saying stormed they... the Ministry of Education, mm. and this guy came out and said, "Look, you know, we mobilised. I mean, it was about over a hundred thousand people mobilised on the streets of Taipei during the Red mm-hmm. Shirt anti-corruption movement, and they didn't storm the presidential building. Mm-hmm. I called it a palace. That was a bit of an overstatement, but they didn't storm the building. So he was basically saying we were more restrained. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think they have something to do with the age as well, because mm-hmm. they were mostly middle class, middle at well, middle class, thirty-five upwards people involved in that one." Right. Yeah, and so we're gonna, we're going to have to see uh, how the government and future administrations, you know, even even the DPP, is uh, it's certainly going to have to uh, find its own way to deal with uh, this new flavor of activism uh, and this uh, new bent to Taiwan politics. So we're going to have to see how this goes. Uh, but for now, we're going to have to take a break. Do stick around for more stories from Taiwan this week. And we're back to Taiwan this week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Jane Ricards. And this half is going to be all about politics. In a moment, we'll be taking a closer look at the impeachment of Tainan Mayor William Lai. But first, you know, we really wanted to take another week off the presidential race, <laughs> but somebody had to go and declare his candidacy. James Soong yesterday formally announced he's jumping into next January's race. This will be the 73-year-old's fourth time participating in a presidential election. Uh, for those not up on the Soong bio, he managed to get second place in the 2000 election against Chen Shui-bian and the KMT's Lian Chen. Then in 2004, he ran as vice president at the bottom of the KMT ticket. And most recently in 2012, he made another bid this time as a presidential candidate for his own People's First Party. Uh, but in this case, uh, only taking a tiny fraction of the vote. Uh, so, Jane, uh, sounds like uh, based on what you were telling me before uh, we turned on these mics, uh, people kind of knew this was coming for a while. Yes, actually, my contacts in the KMT actually told me around five weeks ago that Sung would definitely run, and they said that they thought it was all about drumming up buzz for his um, People First Party legislators rather than there's an actual chance that Sung might win. So, mm-hmm. And another contact of mine who's a military analyst had on his Facebook page, oh, Sung announced his candidacy, surprise, surprise. Right. So, yeah. you know, yeah, people knew this was coming. Right, but uh, now the big day has come, and uh, y- yesterday he was making... Uh, his initial campaign speech. Uh, what stood out to you, Jane? Well, what what I found most interesting was in the early, um, in the late 1990s, when I was pitching a story to um, a foreign media about the presidential race, I sort of said Sung was Beijing's favourite candidate. And on the sort of um, unification independence spectrum, Sung was, say, on the right, you know, the camp was in the middle, the DPP was on the left. 
And um, what's interesting now that when they're running Hong Shouju, it's reversed and Sung has sort of firmly positioned himself in the centre. Mm. And I think that was evidenced in his um, speech when he talked about the need to review the curriculum guidelines. Mm-hmm. And the, he was sort of challenging the sort of – to me that came across that he was sort of challenging the existing guidelines and they need to be more in line with public opinion. Right. Which is – to me, which is, means he's challenging the sort of China-centric mm-hmm. element of the guidelines. Right. Which is quite ironic because it's, it's raised the ire of the KMT, of course. Yes, well... Um, <laughs> quite badly, in fact. In fact, so badly that yeah. the KMT's candidate basically came out Thursday, hours after Sung had announced his running, and basically lambasted him. Yeah. Yes, and what I thought was interesting was that she said that Sung had abandoned the spirit of Jiang Jingguo or something like that, and I think that is not very politically savvy at all because you know I think most of the island remembers him as a dictator. Yeah, the quote was, although Sung has made contributions to Taiwan, his words and deeds over the last decade have gone against the spirit of late President Zhang Jingguo and are drifting farther and farther away from the ideology of the Pan Blue Camp. Mm. There you go, that's Hong Shouchu. Yes, and so in doing so, Hong Shouchu is again, with those comments too, she's putting the KMT firmly on the right because she's identifying the KMT with the sort of forebears who came from mainland China rather than, you know, say the nativist elements of the KMT. Also, Sung, a great line about he wants to form a grand coalition government. Kind of trying to position himself as the bipartisan choice, uh, was my impression, yeah. And of course, going back to what we're talking about, the student sort of protests recently. He's Mm -hmm. obviously trying, however desperately or not desperately, to attract (laughs) the younger voters. He knows he's not going to attract younger voters if he goes out and says, Beijing rocks, Beijing number one. Right, right. He's trying Mm -hmm. to stay in tune with uh, the electorate more than uh, than others have, right. Yeah. Right, uh, but we, I think we could understand why the KMT might not necessarily be thrilled uh, that he's jumping into the race. Uh, I think a lot of observers would say that he single-handedly cost them the 2000 election. Uh, and I guess the question is now, is this race going to be more like the 2000 election where he played a pivotal role or the 2012 election where he was more of a footnote? Uh, what's his role going to be in this race? Keith, I'm opting towards the 2012 option. Um, <laughs> you know, in the 2006 Taipei mayoralty election, he just got 4.14% of the vote. And in 2012, he got 2.77% of the vote. I think it's very going to be very difficult for him to get more votes than Tsai Ing-wen. And the reason why I say this was when the DPP was at its lowest point, when Chen Shui-bian was done for corruption, um, this is the 2008 election, 42% of people still voted for the DPP. So you can say that pan-green voters are around, say, 40 42% of the population. So let's assume Tsai already has that, so swinging voters in the middle. That would, And I think Tsai will get much better than 42%, but... This is a worst-case scenario. So Sung would have to get more than 42% among the remaining, say, 58 60% of the blue voters. And I, I think and the KMT's got its party machine behind it, so he'd need to take practically a significant amount of votes off Hong. But right. apparently, according to a poll that appeared in today's United Daily News, that's a newspaper, and it's, it's a pan-blue-leaning <laughs> newspaper for the listeners that don't know, uh, James Sung came th- Second out of the three main presidential contenders, he got 24% of a support rating poll carried out by the newspaper. Tsai Ing-wen came top with 36% and the KMT's Hong Shou-ju came bottom with 17%. And where is Sherming Der? Yeah, that's quite interesting, actually. They he never mentioned, so... <laughs> is he running? Is his app OK? <laughs> I think he's just... A, my understanding is he's just announced his intentions. I don't think he's actually registered or with the government. Oh, right. So, so how long has he got to register? 
I believe it's late November, the, um, around the 23rd. Right. So that's uh, that's the day that we're going to be looking to when uh, we'll really have a lock on what uh, the shape of this election is going to be. Uh, but moving away from national politics and going down to the local... And we've already discussed before the standoff in Tainan between Mayor William Lai and uh, KMT city councillors. Lai is, of course, refusing to enter the Tainan city council chamber until a vote-buying case against council speaker Li Chuan Chao is settled. Well, this week, the island's top disciplinary body stepped into the dispute in a big way. On Tuesday, the control yuan impeached Lai for, quote, gross negligence for refusing to attend question-and-answer sessions at the council. Lai so far hasn't given any ground, though, and uh, and he's responded by accusing the control UN of overstepping its authority by getting involved in a local government dispute. Uh, so impeachment, you know, it sounds pretty final, but actually uh, we don't know what, if any, punishment will be coming uh, with this ruling. It's being turned over now to the judicial UN. Uh, Gavin, uh, what can you tell us is behind the ruling so far? What has the Control UN been saying? Well, the base of the Control UN abomished William Lai for basically not turning up for city council meetings and said that he neglected to do his duty as an elected official. Uh, and, and, and so where does this case stem from originally? It stems originally from, of course, Council Speaker Li Chuan Zhao actually pushing for the Control UN to impeach the mayor. And, of course, Lee is the council speaker at the centre of the borough who, because Lee has been basically indicted for vote-buying and William Lai has gone, hang on a minute, I'm not going to muddy Tainan politics by stepping foot in a chamber with an indicted individual who's been accused of vote-buying until the investigation has been completely wrapped up and he's either been cleared or thrown in the big house. Right. And so I guess uh, maybe it's uh, the source of things, but we have been hearing a lot of people saying that this is uh, really a politically motivated investigation. Well, it could be. I mean, technically, on paper, if the judicially when investigate William Lai, the investigation is carried through, he could face possible removal from office, which opens a big can of worms in regards to the election. Right. Yeah, that was what actually occurred to me, that um, William Lai is probably the second most popular DPP politician after Tsai Ing-wen. And depending on what the disciplinary committee decides, but will he be able to run for politics in the presidential election? So that might have ruled out the option of having him as a vice president. And I don't think Tsai Ing-wen's, I think Tsai Ing-wen's hinted it might be Suja Chen anyway, but it might tie the DPP's hands a bit if William Lai is not able to participate in politics. That's regard. That's sort of if it goes that far. Yes, of course, William lies shot back against this sort of impeachment going, it's absolute rubbish, it's totally illegal, and the control UN is basically doing the job that the executive UN should be doing by investigating shenanigans, alleged shenanigans and so on, in local politics. And if, and if they do go forward with it, I mean, I, it, it would certainly set off a bit of a political furor, right? I mean, this is there's all kinds of minds that they're stepping into here. I think if exactly. that happened, Keith, the poop would definitely hit the fan, as they say. Mm. So to speak, yeah. as some people say, I suppose. Uh, we also heard this week, though, uh, Li Chen Chao, uh, the, the speaker in question, he kind of put forward his proposal, I guess. A proposal uh, is one way to put it, uh, for ending this standoff, Gavin? Yeah, that was quite comedic, really. He, he said that the William Lai, the Tainan mayor, if he didn't want to come to the chamber, which he's refusing to do, of course, should simply ask the city council for the day off and instead send a representative to the council chamber as a way to end the stalemate. So if William Lai doesn't want to go to the chamber, he'll simply fill in a sick form. Hmm. Okay. That's one way to resolve things. Uh, Jane, uh, where, where, where do you think this is going? 
Unless we just discussed, I think that if um, William Lai is disciplined and removed from office, um, yeah, there'll, there'll be a big furor. And um, I don't think that would help the KMT politically. Um, the Control UN theoretically is supposed to be an independent organisation, but I'm sure those considerations will have influence to some extent. Mm. Um, it's difficult to say, but I, I don't think it's going to really get the huge furor into the huge furor stage. It's not going to quite get there. All right. Well, we're going to have to track it uh, more. I mean, this has just been simmering in the background of Taiwan politics uh, all year now, and uh, I guess it's just going to stay there. So we'll continue following it. Last up for today, we are throwing in a little sweetener for all of you podcast listeners, as we generally do. Uh, It's just a bonus story that uh, takes us away from the rougher political policy punditry type stuff that we so often do. The story this week, though, isn't so sweet. Uh, With Father's Day in Taiwan coming up tomorrow, we've got a couple of surveys that take a close look at fathering in Taiwan. And, Gavin, it's looking kind of bad for the babas. Apparently, apparently, according to the Child Welfare League Foundation, fathers in Taiwan display three alarming features. Those features being not talking much, coming home late and often disappearing. Of course, you know, not talking much is not a problem. Coming home late, maybe you got to work and often disappearing, maybe you went to the pub. <laughs> of course, it doesn't work that way, does it, really? But never mind. Let me, let's look at this survey. And the foundation basically held a survey on exchanges between children and their fathers in the run-up to, of course, Saturday, August the 8th, Father's Day in Taiwan. And the survey found that 54% of children don't talk to their fathers for more than 30 minutes a day, with 6.4% of those exchanging less than one sentence with their fathers fathers on a daily basis. That sounds familiar to me. Maybe I can relate to that. <laughs> well, I, I actually got a chance to talk to them. They're talking about, uh, I, I believe the age range was five to eight. So it's not teenagers that we're talking about. These would all be totally normal numbers for teenagers, uh, I would think. Uh, okay, so uh, maybe not being as uh, participatory in their children's lives as uh, we might hope. No. And another survey, oh, there was a, of course it's Father's Day, so there was a myriad of surveys this week about fathers. This poll actually said that 52.7% of respondents felt that they could do better, as in relationships with their fathers, while 70% of white-collar workers felt that they have not achieved the level of career success that their fathers expected of them. That's quite a lot of uh, people that feel like they let down their dad. Well, it is, it's a bit silly, really, isn't it? I mean, if well, their fathers should surely say, no, this is not my life, it's their life. But that's just the way I look at it. I mean, really. Uh, do, the, do these numbers surprise you, Jane, at all? Not at all. But one interesting thing I will point out is that the labour force participation rate in Taiwan is a lot higher than its neighbours, such as South Korea and Japan. And in fact, a, and one of the main planks of abonomics is actually getting women into the workforce. So Taiwan's actually doing really well in that respect, but it still hasn't, we still don't see the phenomenon of house husbands that we see in the West that's just not taking off here for some reason. Ah, but apparently this all leads to fathers. All these problems are because fathers in Taiwan suffer from stress. This is according to another survey this week. We got another survey. We've got another survey this week. Now, apparently 88% of working fathers here in Taiwan say they are enormously stressed by job-related worries. 
And according to the data, the most prevalent source of this these stress or worries stems from financial burdens at home. That was 76.3% of respondents cited that as a reason. Parenting problems, 39.8% of the fathers cited that as being a bit of an issue. That means crummy kids is what that means, parenting problems. Well, that gets back to what we were talking about earlier, about a generational shift and really <laughs> rebellious teenagers, right? Exactly, exactly. Yes, that means the lack of using the thick ear. <laughs> And that's another matter. And finally, a lack of pay rises. Actually, 38% of fathers cited the reason for their stress being a lack of a pay rise. Do you think any of the stress is coming from uh, people making nasty surveys about them? <laughs> I think the lack of stress might be them having to fill in surveys when they go home. And they can't talk to their children or eat dinner with their children. They're just they being bombarded by surveys, surveys. This week all they day. were completely bombarded with surveys, yes. All right. Well, we are uh, just for the sake of Taiwan's fathers, we're going to end it there uh, and hope uh, wish everybody a, a very happy Father's Day on this typhoon weekend. Uh, I guess uh, with the typhoon outside, you'll have more time to spend with your kids. That's how it works. Uh, so we're going to have to wrap up the show. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please, of course, take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Gavin? It's goodbye. And Jane Ricards. Jane? Goodbye. Thanks, Keith. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.